All right. Welcome, everybody. We are now here for Ask Me Anything About Nutrition. And there are uh, two ways to ask a question. If you would like to be welcomed on stage to ask your question, you'll get priority. And you will be able to share your audio and video with your webcam. And to do that, raise your hand. The second way to ask a question is in the Q&A uh, box. In the Q&A box, uh, you will get priority if you share your name. Uh, I will answer anonymous questions, but in order to make sure that I answer everyone's questions before I give people second and third questions, uh, to be fair to everyone, I have to treat all anonymous questions as coming from one person. Um, and then please do not ask questions in the chat. If you ask questions in the chat, I might not see them. Um, and uh, however, if someone has raised their hand and they are on stage asking a question in that manner, there won't be a question in the Q&A box. So if you do want to jump in on someone's question inside the Q&A box, you can comment on their question. But if someone has raised their hand, they come on screen and you want to jump in, the only way to do it is the chat. So that's the one and only reason to use the chat. Uh, apart from some random comment that it doesn't matter when I happen to see it. Uh, okay, so with that said, let's take a look at the uh, questions in the Q&A box. Anonymous attendee says, you've mentioned before about studies showing reduced hepatic GSH in ketogenic diets. Could you please explain what, you, what your expectations would be in terms of how that interacts with the glutathione levels in plasma and other tissues. Is the liver normally responsible for glutathione export to the rest of the body or do tissues mostly make their own? Do you think hepatic glutathione drops because it is exporting more or making less or both? How does the glutathione uh, reduced to oxidized ratio fit into all of this? Okay. So glutathione, just as very quick review, glutathione is the central antioxidant in the cell. It is what is using energy from the system of energy metabolism, ultimately coming from glucose to help support antioxidant status by recycling vitamin C, by recycling indirectly vitamin E, by preventing uh, through its supportive role in supporting vitamin E through preventing lipid peroxidation, which is damage to lipids in the cell membrane, um, and also by regenerating uh, lipid peroxides into less harmful molecules. And it also helps get rid of hydrogen peroxide. And then glutathione is also used um, is also used in detoxification. It's also used to maintain mucus fluidity in the lungs. It's also used to help dilate the bronchioles, thereby creating the normal state of not having asthma. Um, and it's very compromised in asthma. And it's also used to regulate hundreds, if not thousands, of different proteins. Um, and that's, you know, that's in general its role. And we could go on in, in great detail about that, but won't. So this question is asking, number one, why does, as I've mentioned elsewhere, why does a ketogenic diet lower hepatic glutathione? That means glutathione in the liver. And number two, you know, if that happened to someone, what would you expect to happen in their blood? And then the person's also asking, what's the relationship between the liver store of glutathione and what's going on with glutathione and the rest of the body? So um, most of the glutathione that is made in the body is made in the liver. 
And the liver is the main source of circulating glutathione in the blood. But glutathione generally doesn't go from the blood to other tissues directly, although uh, although there, there deserves to be a little bit of controversy over that because there are glutathione transporters that transport glutathione intact from the blood to other tissues. But that's not thought to be the main way that the liver would support a tissue having good glutathione status. Um, in general, it is thought that the uh, glutathione in the blood will be broken down at the surface of the cell into uh, amino acids or dipeptides, which is two amino acids, and that those uh, having been broken down will be taken up into the cell and be resynthesized into glutathione within the cell. So it probably depends on cell and tissue. There is some glutathione that is taken up directly through glutathione transporters, but it's probably mostly the case uh, or at least majority case that cells are making their own glutathione. However, they just happen to be making that glutathione from, uh, they happen to re be remaking the glutathione from glutathione that was in the blood because the liver exported it to the blood. Um, so mainly what's happening is you're eating sulfur amino acids in the protein that you eat, especially in animal protein, but in any protein. And those are traveling through the portal vein from the intestines into the liver. In the liver, uh, they get turned into glutathione. Whatever exceeds the need for glutathione gets turned, gets uh, broken down further into taurine and sulfate. And uh, the liver is synthesizing glutathione um, not only for its own purposes, but also to store glutathione for export into the rest of the body. It's not because those cells can't make that glutathione themselves. It's actually because uh, free cysteine is highly toxic. And so free cysteine concentrations are always extremely low because if they weren't, you would have toxicity from the cysteine. So you got to do something with it. And making glutathione is a way to store it because if you start... Uh, if you start um, breaking down sulfur amino acids beyond what could be used for glutathione, they're going to get turned into taurine and sulfate. Um, and a lot of that sulfate is going to leave the body. And so you have to, if you can't keep the cysteine around, um, you know, uh, and the methionine you could use in the methylation cycle, but if you keep it in the methylation cycle, when you don't, um, when you don't need when you don't need it for methylation, you're going to overmethylate things. Um, and so storing it as glutathione and whether you keep that in the liver or export it into the blood is actually kind of the safest way to dispose of it. Because worst case, you make more glutathione, you're going to have some better capacity for antioxidant defense and detoxification in the liver. Um, but you've preserved that so that it can be remade into glutathione somewhere else. Because once you go to taurine and sulfate, there's no remaking the glutathione. Um, and it, uh, so that's, that's basically how that, how that works. Now, in terms of why would a ketogenic diet impact glutathione, glutathione synthesis is regulated by three things. Um, and, uh, so number one, um, do you have the amino acids and do you have enough energy because glutathione synthesis is energy intensive? Um, number two is oxidative stress. Do you need to defend against oxidative stress? And then number three is glutathione levels themselves. Have you made enough glutathione? So if you can make glutathione and you need to make glutathione and you haven't made enough glutathione, when those three qu uh, questions are answered in that way, you make glutathione. Um, 
now, you know, if you've made enough glutathione, the negative feedback loop from glut from the glutathione itself will stop glutathione synthesis. Um, if you don't need glutathione because there's no oxidative stress, you'll make less glutathione because you don't need it. But even if you need it, and even if you haven't made enough, if you don't have the underlying amino acids that you need as building blocks, and you don't have enough energy to invest, you won't make the glutathione because you can't. So that comes down to basic number one principle. Basic number one principle is, uh, can you even make the glutathione? Now, in a ketogenic diet, you might have enough protein, but you have to remember what, you know, if in physiologically, what is the context of ketogenesis? What is it saying to the body? And ketogenesis is a, is a partial mimic of the fasting state. So the, the main time you have high circulating ketones is under extended fasting. And those ketones are made because they help spare the requirement for breaking down muscle mass and allow you to live on an extended fast for much longer without dying. That's the main context in which ketogenesis evolved. And uh, for a normal uh, mixed diet, people are always, all of us are, entering the, uh, cyclically entering the uh, fasting and feeding states alternately. And the longest exposure to the uh, fasting period during a normal three meal a day mixed meal uh, program would be overnight. And in fact, you do make something like 140 calories worth of ketones overnight. Your ketone levels will be perceptible upon an overnight fast. Um, and uh, and so, you know, you may not have very significant levels of ketones in the blood. Um, you, they're measurable, but not that significant. But that's, you know, normally ketogenesis is associated with, with the fasting state, even in short term. Now, the reason the ketogenic diet evolved is because, or the reason it was invented was because researchers knew that fasting could cure epilepsy and they wanted to mimic the fasting state while allowing people to not die of starvation be, uh, uh, and yet carry the treatment on for more than 40 or 50 days. That's the whole purpose that the ketogenic diet was invented for. So it was invented as a mimic of the fasting state. And in fact, um, and in fact, that's, you know, that's what it is. And so ordinarily the body is programmed to perceive you to have maximally been fed when you are given not only enough calories, but also when you're giving enough cal uh, carbohydrate for an insulin spike. And that's because, um, Carbohydrates happen to be a more versatile uh, use of energy than fats. Fats can do, you know, they supply your basic caloric needs, but there's certain things that carbohydrates are needed for, uh, even to burn for energy, that if they're not there, you're not fully fed. And yeah, you can make your own glucose, but, you know, having to make your own glucose is not to be fed glucose. And so the system of insulin and glucagon is set up for a high insulin to glucagon ratio to be... Uh, indicating maximally fed status and for a low insulin to glucagon ratio to be indicative of the maximally fasting state. And so um, what a ketogenic diet does is put you in a low insulin to glucagon ratio long-term and the insulin to glucagon ratio is what is used to for the body to perceive whether it has enough energy to invest in making glutathione. And so... Uh, the reason the liver's glutathione is going to go down on a ketogenic diet is because you're in the fasting state. Um, it's, 
glutathione synthesis is a fed state process. It's something that goes down in the fasting state and up in the fed state, period. And so if you're using a diet that is mimicking the fasting state and is allowing you to carry out fasting state physiology for a longer period of time than you would be able to go on zero calories, then you're going to mimic the fasting state. And the fasting state is characterized by lower glutathione synthesis. And that's the end of it. Um, now, if you look at the papers by the Milder group that I was discussing on Twitter, and I'll I'll make a uh, a note to link to these in the show notes right here. So Milder papers on keto diet and glutathione. Um, then uh, if you look at those papers, what they were showing was that in the hippocampus, the uh, ketogenic diet caused oxidative stress. And I don't know why it caused oxidative stress, but it might've been um, that, it might have been that the glutathione was originally lowered. I don't know. Um, but the, the ketogenic diet caused oxidative stress. And over a few days, there was a compensatory response that started to kick in. And it led to greater glutathione synthesis to deal with the fact that more glutathione was needed. And so in that case, the lower insulin to glucagon ratio was relatively less important in the hippocampus, um, which isn't that surprising. I don't know how much insulin gets into the brain. Whereas the need for glutathione in the hippocampus became the dominant signal that increased glutathione synthesis. By contrast, the liver has very high exposure to insulin and glucagon that are circulating and is a key target of insulin and glucagon signaling to tell the liver what to do, unlike the hippocampus, as far as I know. Um, if someone knows about how insulin signaling affects the hippocampus, it's probably Stephen Guillenet in my circle anyway. But... Um, but at least I can say that I don't, as far as I know, the hippocampus is not going to be a primary target of insulin and glucagon, whereas the liver will be a central target of insulin and glucagon um, because the liver is coordinating whole body energy metabolism and it's the liver's job to deal with adjusting to the fasting state and the fed state. And so therefore, the insulin to glucagon ratio is the dominant force in hepatic glutathione signaling. Um, and what those papers showed was that over the time course of the experiments, the oxidative damage that happened in the hippocampus was never brought back to normal, even though the compensation to the oxidative stress increased glutathione synthesis. Now, had that been studied, had that study been carried on for 12 weeks, uh, maybe it would have shown total reversal of the oxidative stress in the hippocampus, but they didn't show that. Um, and so everyone who's a keto diet proponent, and I'm not against the keto diet, I'm just delivering the, the facts here. Um, everyone who's using these papers to promote the keto diet and pointing out that the oxidative, uh, that the antioxidant defense, including glutathione synthesis, increased in a time-dependent manner, uh, should also be pointing out that it, while it's possible that after 12 weeks, the oxidative damage as measured by 4-HNE, which is a lipid peroxidation product, would have gone away, um, it didn't. It, that wasn't shown in the study. So what was shown was that you had maximal glutathione suppression in the liver that continued to the end of the study and that you had compensation to the initial oxidative stress to ramp up protective antioxidant defense in the hippocampus. Um, but that never was carried out long enough to show whether it could fully compensate to bring back the oxidative damage in the hippocampus back to zero or back to baseline. Um, and so... Uh, I, I have no reason to believe that um, it wouldn't be the case in other tissues that they, 
you know, to the extent that they're influenced by the fasting feeding cycle, in direct proportion to that, their glutathione status will be lower on a ketogenic diet. Um, you know, but to the extent they're vulnerable to oxidative stress and to the extent that that increases oxidative stress and there are other compensations that kick in, um, they will also have some pressure to make more glutathione as a result of the oxidative stress. And there will be some rebalancing and some steady state glutathione synthesis that integrates those signals. Um, but, you know, square one is, can you make the glutathione? So the in, if, if you don't have enough of an insulin to glucagon signaling process to actually say, yes, you can make the glutathione, um, you know, needing the glutathione isn't good enough. So, um, so yeah, so to get back to your questions, um, do you think hepatic glutathione drops because it's exporting more and making less or both because it's making less? Um, and then because it's making less, it will probably export less because of that. And the last question is, how does the glutathione to, to uh, reduce the oxidized ratio or the GSH to GSSG ratio fit into all of this? That's a measure of how oxidized the glutathione is. And um, lower glutathione concentrations will tend to... Um, so if the glutathione drops, if glutathione synthesis drops in the liver, um, glut, the, that ratio is going to go down. Um, but as a result of that, the, the liver will export GSSG to the plasma um, in order to keep that ratio as close to normal as it can. And that will also cause the ratio to go down in the plasma. So the liver's reaction to make less glutathione is to conserve glutathione for itself and to get rid of GSSG. That's going to lower glutathione in the plasma and increase GSSG in the plasma. Um, and so uh, plasma's plasma in general is going to be very reflective of what happens in the liver and glutathione status is going to be hurt across the board. Um, I'm not against a ketogenic diet. I'm just saying that there are certain things that are associated with the fed state. And, um, and so it's good to enter the fed state fully, at least from time to time. And so a natural question from this is, would it be better to go on a cyclical ketogenic diet? Um, yeah. I mean, as, as far as I can tell from any reasonable theory of physiology, um, it would definitely be better to be on a cyclical, have cyclical refeeds in order to maximize the fed state processes because you will not maximize fed state processes on a ketogenic diet to the full extent that you can. It's impossible. All right. Thank you, Anonymous, for your answer. Uh, I believe we had a hand raised. We have two participants who raised hands. And so I'm going to uh, go to these folks. Uh, I'll go to Christina first. So uh, warning, Christina, I'm going to make you a panelist so that you can share your webcam. And then wait one second as I put my... Hey, Chris. I'm on. Can you hear me? Uh, now I can hear you. Okay. I won't share my video because I'm in France and it's really dark here. I try to dim oh, the light. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I'll go quickly. So my two questions, I think they're quite short, but they're related to MTHFR. Uh, I am homozygous for the 677. And um, my first question is, what's a good level of folate and homocysteine within the normal range that would tell me I'm not 
my uh, my functional functional uh, my function of MTHFR is not too affected. So, for example, my homocysteine was eight at one point, range being under ten. My folate was kind of mid range. Is that good? Uh, I don't know what the ranges are in France, but the range for folate here is useless. It's greater than three nanograms per milliliter, and it's yeah, good to be around twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's not a I, there's not a lot of data from the scientific literature. It's just that uh, anecdotally, every time that I've worked with someone to improve their diet or supplement pro, uh, regime in a way that, um, in order to deal with methylation related issues, that was successful. Uh, it the folate all the all serum folate always goes up to the like eighteen to twenty two range, and in anyone who doesn't have methylation problems, who doesn't have MTHFR, who uh, is eating a good diet, uh, and they don't have any such problems, it's also always in the eighteen to twenty two range. So, um, eighteen to twenty two nanograms per milliliter for serum folate, and then for homocysteine, I would say seven to nine. I think eight is right smack in the middle and is fine. Um, no harm in getting down to five if you can get there, but I wouldn't, if you're in the seven to nine range, I wouldn't worry about it. Gotcha. Thanks very much. So I got to increase that fully then. Um, and secondly, my B12 has been significantly above range. Both times I tested it a couple of years ago and more recently, I do supplement methyl, um, methylcobalamin. And I've heard that it might mean due to MTHFR that it's not getting used by the cells. I don't know if that's just a myth and if so, is it worth trying to supplement instead of combination of adenosine and uh, hydroxocobalamin? Um, I, so the right way to address that would be to measure serum or uh, or urine or both methylmalonic acid, MMA. And that's a functional marker that's very specific to B12. If B12 was, um, if, if it's not getting into the cell, then methylmalonic acid is going to be high. The more the overwhelmingly most probable reason for B12 being high if you're taking a B12 supplement is that you're taking the B12 supplement and it's just not having the time to clear from plasma because you're taking it often enough um, to always keep the plasma level high. The fact the plasma level is high doesn't tell you anything about whether it's getting into the cell if you're supplementing because it's, you know, if, if you weren't supplementing with B12 and you were getting normal dietary levels of B12, which are probably thousands of times less than what's in the supplement, then yeah, you could say, well, if it's real high, maybe it's not getting into the cell. Although even then, not it not getting into the cell is not the most common explanation. There's a lot of disease processes that can be associated with that. If you want to be certain about it, you could stop taking the B12 for a couple of weeks and then get it retested. But I personally wouldn't bother with that. I would just test methylmalonic acid because that is a direct specific functional marker of B12 status. Um, and I think that gives you your answer about it getting into the cell. Thanks. And, um, for the MMA, if I can't get the urine version, which I've heard is potentially better, is the serum one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the best thing is to get both, but, uh, one or the other is better than nothing. Okay. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for your question. Um, this, okay. Um, Donna, I am now promoting you to a panelist. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Hi, Chris. Hi. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for all the COVID information that has been so incredibly useful. Um, I have two questions. So I'm 
you know, I'm an active uh, 68-year-old woman who um, I eat right, I do everything right, and for 30 years I've been avoiding a statin because my LDLs are just, and they just keep going up. And um, I just re recently went on a statin because I have family history of stroke, and, you know, I'm starting to get to that age where I'm like, no way am I having a stroke. And so... Do you have any recommendations for, I mean, I've tried pantothenic acid, I've, you know, done niacin, I've done everything. If there's anything that you can recommend, uh, that would be helpful. Okay. Um, I guess the top things that I would think of to lower cholesterol levels are, number one, I'd get thyroid uh, status thoroughly checked it out. Sometimes that's an issue. Um, number two, I would consider experimenting with a diet low in saturated fat or a diet low in cholesterol to see how responsive your levels are to those things. Um, probably a 75% drop from what you're currently eating would be a good test to see uh, if there's an effect. Um, number three, I would experiment with some uh, fiber supplements. Psyllium husk is a good one to try. Um, number four, um, I don't think this is relevant uh, for you, but for people who are overweight, then uh, normalizing body composition is an issue. Um, number five, um, for I wouldn't use pantothenic acid. I would try pantothine, and then I would look at the yeah, dose. Right. Oh, pantothine. And what dose were you using? Um, I think it was 900 milligrams. Yeah, okay. That Well, if that didn't work, then... Um, then it's not going to work. Um, yeah. And so if you try pantothine, you've tried niacin, then I think you're, you're, there's a couple other things that could be relevant. Sometimes copper deficiency can raise cholesterol levels. Sometimes magnesium deficiency is involved, but um, those are the big levers. And if you've pulled them all and you haven't gotten results, then I think you're, you're unlikely to get results without taking a statin. Uh, if you do choose to take a statin, then I would be careful to, take coenzyme Q10 and then the MK4 form of vitamin K2 to make sure that you are um, vitamin K2 has a form called MK4 statins inhibit the synthesis of MK4 uh, and MK4 is the form of vitamin K2 that plays some essential roles that you know that are so essential that we will convert other forms of vitamin K to it but statins in, interfere with that process and so yep. um, and so I would be careful to supplement with that as well. Okay. And then I just have one other question, if you don't mind. Yep. Um, I just also was recently diagnosed uh, a month or so ago with a DVT, which, well, I came out of the blue. What, you know, how did I get this? And um, so I'm on a statin, Eliquis, for three months. And then after that, I'm wondering, like, I've been reading about like enzymes, like, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce them, like natokinase and those types of things. What do you think of that as for? Should I go on that afterwards, or I mean? Yeah, I think I think they're uh, worth experimenting with. There was uh, one of our members in a previous AMA had pointed out uh, that in his experience, lumbrokinase was more effective than natokinase. I don't have too much experience with them, but um, I think they make sense. I would just make sure that you're. Uh, working with your doctor and they know that you're taking them and that you can get the relevant blood measurements to make sure that your clotting risk is being controlled because, you know, DVTs uh, can have serious consequences. And so um, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to manage it naturally, but you don't want to sort of use that as a reason not to do the proper follow-up with, with the doctor. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think they, they're great tools in the kit as long as you're doing the proper testing. Okay, great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, okay. All right. So we now have uh, Rangan, who I'm going to promote to panelists for his question. Hello, Chris. Can you hear me? Hi, Rangan. I can I can hear you. Hey, hey. My question was: Is it a good idea to try to lower insulin uh, before every meal uh, by, let's say, consuming apple cider vinegar or a lemon or chromium or vanadium? Uh, you know, it, it, what is the impact of that? Of following that protocol? Yeah, I think I think those things uh, can help stabilize blood sugar and. Um, I don't know that you necessarily want to, I, I, I'm, I personally am not a fan of the idea that you want to minimize, uh, insulin at every meal. Um, but I do think that you want to moderate the blood sugar spike. Um, and I, I don't think that it's a problem for the blood sugar to go up a little bit. I, I don't think it has to be perpetually maintained at, in a straight line at fasting state levels. Um, you know, but I, I mean, from a digestive perspective, I think some of those things, like a little bit of apple cider vinegar at, at every meal, is, it might be very helpful on your digestive system, and that might be a reason to do it regardless. But um, from a blood sugar perspective, I would take it more on a case by case basis. So, if your blood sugar tends to not be stable, I'd be looking at things like that. Whereas, uh, I don't really think that you know someone who's got very healthy body composition and very healthy glucose metabolism their glucose spikes up you know within the normal range but goes back down very easily doesn't have elevated fasting glucose uh postprandial glucose never goes above 140 no matter whether they pound carbs or not um i, I don't uh i don't think that you necess i don't think it um makes sense just for the purpose of kind of trying to make the postprandial glucose as low as possible or uh, trying to lower the insulin requirement as low as possible. Uh, I wouldn't target that uh, because like I was saying before in the answer on the ketogenic diet, uh, it, you know, it is desirable to cycle into the fed state. And so the insulin isn't bad. It's just, it's just a matter of is your glucose handling and your glucose load um, is your, is your glucose load overburdening what you're able to handle? And so I'm not against doing any of those things preemptively, but I'm also not concerned with doing them specifically to lower postprandial insulin for someone whose postprandial in, insulin levels are are healthy anyway. Hey, just to give you some more, uh, another data point, uh, you know, my glucose, I've done this test once where I measured insulin before and after. Okay. And, uh, my glucose when fasted state was 77 and after two hours went up to 198. And my 198? insulin- 198? 198. And my insulin- Wait, uh, I'm sorry, from, one, 198 or- 90? 198, yes. Okay, okay. Milligram- yeah, I, would, I, would be uh, trying to, I would be trying to lower that, yeah. Right. And my insulin went from uh, six to 603. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in that case, I would definitely be trying to lower the, the glucose response. 
Um, and I, what I, what I would do in such a situation would be to, uh, run a series of experiments on the type of carbohydrate as well as the, um, as well as the amount of carbohydrate, as well as the context of the meal to see, as well as all those tr tricks that you mentioned. So, you know, if you want to take apple cider vinegar or something fermented or glycine um, before a meal, that can help manage the blood sugar. Um, <clears throat> but you really want to figure out, you know, what is, pick a standard meal and a standard supplement regimen that you think you'll probably sustain. And that would be your control baseline meal context. And then take the different carbohydrates that you eat and say, well, what happens if I eat this exact same meal with these exact same supplements and I eat rice versus I eat lentils a different time versus I eat sweet potatoes a different time versus I eat white potatoes a different time and so on or fruit or whatever. And uh, and always with the same carbohydrate load. So pick a carbohydrate load that's representative of what you usually eat. Maybe it's 40 grams just to pick a number out. So, you know, standard meal plus 40 grams of rice, standard meal plus 40 grams of lentils, et cetera. And then once you've uh, identified, and of course, all these need to be repeated uh, three times to be confident in the, in the results because there's variation between the trials. But once you're confident of how the different... Um, carbohydrates impact your blood sugar, then the next step is to say, okay, what is what is the amount that I can safely eat with my blood sugar going no further than 140? Um, you know, so I, and I would, I would do these measurements at like uh, 30 minutes, one hour, two hours, three hours, something like that. And at none of those points, should your blood sugar ever be over 140? Uh, I would use that as the so maximum. And so define the carbohydrate load of the specific foods that uh, you can tolerate within that range. And then once you have that, then you can experiment with other things like what happens if I add apple cider vinegar uh, to this regimen? What happens if I add whey protein, which can also help? What happens if I add glycine, which can also help? Um, and I think, I think that approach, because if your glucose is going up to 200, um, then I, I don't I don't think you want to uh, just by default eat the same carbohydrate load and try to throw tweaks on top of it because at, at the end of the day those tweaks are meant to to tweak and the carbohydrate load is going to be determining what you know what you can actually handle. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And in that test, actually, it was with sugar water that OGTT or whatever that is called, right? So it was right. they gave me sugar. And then they measured the spike of uh, glucose and insulin after two hours. Okay. So with a home glucose monitor, you'd be able to see how how much does that test actually reflect what happens when I eat um, a typical meal. Right. Um, you know, so if it goes up to 200 on 75 grams of gl pure glucose um, and it never goes above 120 on your usual diet, then it's like, yeah, your glucose tolerance has some deficits in it, but but not enough deficits to change your usual diet. You know? Okay. okay. It's it's yeah, like it's yeah. the test is is a great hint at what might be happening, but at the end of the day, what matters is what happens when you eat the meal you always eat. Yeah, mine has a maximum gone to 160 when I've done this at home with uh with my yeah, typical well, meal. Even even 160 is worth 
Okay. Targeting to lower. Yeah. Oh, I see. Got it. Okay. Thanks a lot, Chris. You're welcome. All right. Next, we have Eric. I am promoting Eric to panelist. Hi, Eric. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you. I just uh, I just got your short email the other day, and it titillated me. You were discussing um, anxiety, dopamine, and methylation, and I've been battling um, some pseudo familial uh, anxiety, trying to get a handle on it. And I wonder if you could expound a bit, because I was really short. You just got you just got my interest and uh, left me hanging. Um, could, did, did you, you have, have some... any Did you have any specific questions, or did you want to? me to kind of give the the overview well um probably the overview i'm I'm trying to get a handle of the uh, over this anxiety without medicating uh, i was on sure. amlodipine for 2.5 migs for a few weeks i got my pressure down without a problem and then the other day it started going up again and i, I they the doctors all seem to think that it's anxiety driven and i have some problems sleeping at night i wake up two or three times in the middle of the night and my I'm one of these guys that thinks and thinks and thinks and thinks and thinks. And I'm wondering if it's a methylation problem, a dopamine problem. Okay. So um, there's a few trans neurotransmitters that are particularly relevant. Um, histamine is, is a key anxiety neurotransmitter. So um, at very low levels, histamine causes you to be awake instead of asleep. At a little bit higher levels, histamine causes you to be alert but at even higher levels, histamine causes you to be anxious. And at very high levels, histamine can induce a panic attack. And so you, you, know, you want histamine to be zero when you're sleeping and intermediate when you're awake at the level that causes alertness, um, but doesn't lead to uh, anxiety or panic. And the amount of histamine that's controlled uh, within a cell is controlled by methylation. So if you don't have methyl, if you don't have sufficient methylation of histamine, your histamine levels will be higher and they might get higher into that anxiety level or the panic level. Another, do uh, another neurotransmitter that's relevant is dopamine. And I don't see dopamine as primarily actually causing baseline anxiety. I see dopamine primarily as... Um, influencing the balance between mental stability and mental fluidity. So when you're more mentally stable, um, and I don't mean that in a context of mental illness, I mean, uh, I mean, your emotional state, your psychological state, and your flow of ideas is um, more more focused and less less more difficult to change. That's what I mean by stable. And so when your mental state is more stable. Um, that can be beneficial because it can be good for focus on work or focus on academics, but it, it can also be um, counterproductive because if there's something that provokes anxiety, it may be harder to get rid of that thing. On the other hand, um, if you're more mentally fluid, that can be beneficial because you may uh, be better at multitasking or seamlessly uh, going between different uh, different tasks. Um and it also may be beneficial because if you get an anxiety producing thought, it may just go easy to get rid of it. Um, but on the other, on the other hand, it also um, makes you uh, predisposed to being distracted, um, to being impulsive and so on. So you want to be kind of in the middle 
where you're mentally stable enough to hold on to the ideas that are meaningful to you and are motivating to you, but uh, mentally fluid enough that if you get an anxiety provoking idea, uh, you can get rid of it and just say, I don't care about that. Go, okay. go away. Um, and so meth enough methylation, uh, methylation generally predisposes you towards more mental fluidity. Um, and so if you have a tendency to ruminate or you have a tendency for an anxiety producing thought to get stuck, then, um, then you want more methylation to make you more mentally fluid. And so anxiety and, and on both of those fronts, you can imagine an interaction. So, um, an anxiety producing thought may cause a spike in histamine and the histamine causes uh, a greater arousal that causes a physiological anxiety response. But because you're too mentally stable, you uh, are have great difficulty getting rid of the original provoking response. And not only that, but you have difficulty not paying attention to the increased state of arousal, which itself causes more anxiety. And so the increased availability of histamine might amplify the arousal response to the stimulus, whereas the poor methylation of dopamine will cause that state to get stuck and will cause a, um, a, a potentially a feedback loop that um, could lead to, in the extreme result, a panic attack. So, I, you know, I've suffered from panic attacks before and I no longer do, but the way that I see them is basically um, you got anxious and then you got anxious about the fact that you were anxious and then you got anxious <laughs> about that. Sounds familiar. And and it, uh, it's, it spirals into um, ultimately the maximal state of anxiety possible. Um, and uh, so there... So that's that. And th that's the main way methylation is going to come into play. There are other things that are relevant. So um, uh, the relative balance between glutamate and GABA can be relevant. More glutamate is more stimulatory. More GABA is more calming. Um, glycine is another calming neurotransmitter that plays similar roles to GABA. So basically too much glutamate, not enough GABA and glycine may also uh, predisposed to anxiety. And that's why a lot of people are treated with a lot of the drugs that people are treated with for anxiety are acting on GABA receptors to induce that calming state. Um, and so that's relevant. That's, that's not so much about methylation. That's more about other things. Um, and then there's also other things as well, like cortisol levels and adrenaline levels can also um, impact anxiety, but through kind of different means. So uh, cortisol, if it raises your blood sugar too high, is going to create a glucose spike in the brain, which actually is the basis for how your glutamate levels rise because your brain makes glutamate from glucose. Um, so that can feed into that loop that way. Um, and then, you know, adrenaline could get your heart pounding and that can be more of a lower body peripheral state of arousal that causes feedback loops and the things in the brain that we talked about before. Um, but, you know, from that perspective, I would use methylation to act mostly on histamine and dopamine to promote less, uh, less of an excess arousal in histamine and more of a mentally fluid state in dopamine. Fantastic. Can I, a quick follow-up? Sure. Um, can we measure these, how easy is it to measure these neurotransmitters and, and then figure out the best course of action from that point and... Yeah. Um, measurement of neurotransmitters is very difficult because um, no one's going to stick a needle in your brain and measure them where they matter. But you can get 
uh, some hints and make some inferences if you look at blood concentrations of histamine or urine concentrations of neurotransmitter metabolites. Um, so if you wanted two easy tests that kind of encapsulated everything, I would say the Genova methylation panel and the Genova ion panel plus 40 would give you more than enough to probe this stuff. They don't measure histamine levels, but they do look at, um, they do look at methylation and the methylation panel looks at methylation in great detail. And you can, I don't think you need to know the histamine levels in your brain. You can reason through it enough that if you have anxiety and you have signs of clear deficiencies in the methylation pathway, uh, I think that's adequate to act on supporting methylation um, in those ways. And then the Genova ion panel does have neurotransmitter metabolites, but they don't have histamine. They have uh, dopamine and norepinephrine metabolites and serotonin metabolites in the urine. Okay. Well, thank you for taking the time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Great talking to you. Take care. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to David Anderson. Hi, David. David. Oh, sorry, I had the mute button oh. on. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Hey. Thanks, thanks for the Q&A. You're welcome. Uh, thanks for coming so, on. Uh, a uh, couple, a uh, couple of questions here. Um, I uh, have been working through some chronic skin issues, eczema and seborrheic dermatitis, and uh, for several years, a nutrition specialist recommended looking at possible zinc deficiencies. Um, and I noticed in the 101 course, it you know recommends you know 10 milligrams three to four times a day, spreading it out, timing away from phytate foods. Um, you know, and the zinc Jura balance, I guess, as a, as a zinc copper, ba copper balance supplement uh, was recommended. Um, beyond that, any particular protocol you'd recommend around, you know, should just you know, start at 10 milligrams three times a day, you know, continue for a month, observe any differences, what, and, and any other observational kind of hints at is a zinc deficiency in play or not? Well, to see whether a zinc deficiency is in play, I would measure plasma zinc. And if the plasma zinc, the sweet spot is around 120. If the plasma zinc is in the 70 to 90 range, that's borderline. And if it's below 70, that's you know very clearly potentially related to skin problems. And I think you have your answer right there. Uh, if your zinc's at 120, you, you your skin problem is not due to zinc deficiency. Um, in terms of... I would run the testing before starting the zinc supplementation. Otherwise, you're going to be in a position where you can never test it to know what the original plasma zinc right, was. To get a good baseline. And yeah, the reason that's important is um, you can start supplementing and your plasma zinc can go up, but that doesn't mean your tissue stores are saturated. And so without knowing the original baseline plasma zinc, you're going to be in a very gray zone where you don't know how much lower it would have been had you caught it at the beginning. Um, and what I would do from there is add, you know, the zinc along the lines that I had recommended um, and then follow up on, uh, you know, it kind of depends on how uh, subjectively, how much time you want to put into it. You could give it 12 weeks if you're, you don't care about it that much, but if you're very anxious about quick solving the issue as quickly as possible, or or um, then you know you could give it four weeks and measure it at four week intervals and adjust the dose if you need to. Um, I would just say that 
it's reasonable to expect the plasma zinc to go up for four weeks and then maybe go up another four weeks. So it's really the point at which two measurements in a row are showing the same thing that shows you that you've plateaued. And if you plateaued somewhere lower than where you want to be, you probably need a higher dose. Um, I would also look at your riboflavin status for seborrheic dermatitis. Okay. Riboflavin, um, vitamin B6, biotin, and uh, omega-6 fatty acids I would look at. Okay, cool. I had the mega quant profile. Okay, great. You yeah. you anticipated my second and final question, uh, and that was it. <laughs> okay, thank you. Perfect. Great talking to you. Two. All right. Next up is Melissa. Melissa, are you there? Yes. Hi. 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 Okay. Um... So, hi, Chris. <laughs> this uh, summer, I developed some pretty bad acid reflux issues okay. it was in my throat. My throat was closing up. I went to an ENT who then, you know, gave me a bunch of antacids, which ended up making it worse. So now I have like a lot of pain under my sternum, like where I guess my, my esophagus is. So um, I've been, you know, reading about different diets and trying to figure out what the best diet is to deal with acid reflux. Is it AIP, low carb, low FODMAPs? Is it, you know, does it matter? I'm like, I've been getting so much conflicting advice. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. So all I can do is just throw out a few guesses. Um, I, I definitely think that it's low carb for some people. In fact, I just was talking to a client today whose son um, has has acid reflux since a baby that only goes away when he's on zero carb. So that's true for some people. Um, but I I think um, and I, and actually I've done I did quite a bit of reading on acid reflux recently about what's causing it and. Um, I, so I think that, um, see, I'm trying to dig into my memory of what I was reading. Um, I think, I think probably one of the best things that you could do is go for a walk after every time you eat. Have you tried that? No, I haven't. So, um, one thing I didn't know until I read some reviews on it is that, uh, the, and I was surprised by this too, cause I was always thinking of stomach acid is kind of mixing with everything, but actually the stomach acid makes a coat around the big bunch of food that's in your stomach. And, um, and the acid reflux seems to be driven by a, like a big droplet of acid that's on the top close to the sphincter. And uh, one of the key differences between people who have acid reflux and people who don't is that that droplet is like twice as big. And it's basically there because of um, kind of gets trapped by the food. And one of the, and uh, in simulations, if you just have more mechanical action to move the food along and to mix it together more, uh, you will sort of mix in that acid and you'll have less sitting at the top. Um, and so my guess is that, uh, go, going for a walk to take, I guess like if, you, and this is true across the board for digestion, 
the worst thing that you can do after eating is lay down. And the best thing that you can do after eating is go for a walk. And somewhere in the middle is sit on the couch and watch TV, which is pretty bad, but not, not the worst. And, um, and I say this to someone who eats most of my food sitting in front of the TV, but it's, it's, um, when you're standing up, gravity's on your side. And when you're walking, uh, mechanical, um, movements are on your side in terms of helping the food move down the stomach. And when you're laying down, gravity's working directly against you because it's keeping the food in the stomach longer than it should be. Um, So I I do think it's worth experimenting with different diets and, you know, you can see if eating a low carb diet helps you. Um, You can see if changing your meal size helps you and you can, and you can see if composition of the meal helps you. Um, But I, I really do think that going for a walk after you eat is probably something that could be very useful. And then um, if, so if composite, uh, if composite, I, I guess uh, everything we were talking about before about methylation and histamine could potentially be relevant because uh, too much histamine could be causing too much stomach acid, but that seems unlikely to be your problem if the antacids made everything worse. Um, and so I I wouldn't go down the route of, I, I, I guess tar- trying to target lower stomach acid is probably not going to help you based on your previous experience. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Next up is Danny. Danny, you have been promoted to panelist. Danny, can you hear me? You're on mute. All right, Danny might not be ready, so I'll... Hey, Chris, can you hear me? Danny's ready. I can, yeah, I can the hear mute, you. Yeah. button gets me every time. Um, <laughs> so my, uh, my question is around biotin level. So on an older podcast, I don't remember which one, you mentioned egg white consumption might create a biotin deficiency. Right. So Kevin and I have eaten eight to nine egg whites and one to two whole eggs as part of my breakfast since the early 2000s. I looked into that a little bit. And I do have a red patchy scaly rash around my mouth and nose that flares up periodically that started in around 2006. Um, And I treat that with ketoconazole cream as prescribed by my dermatologist. And that kind of takes care of it. But anyway, that plus hair loss, which may be hereditary, I thought maybe it makes sense for me to have a biotin test. So I did. And the results came back in the normal range per the lab's range, but it was in the bottom 10%. So I had this done at Boston, um, at Cambridge Biomedical in Massachusetts. And the test result was 492.5 picograms per milliliter in a range of 221 to 3004. Um, So I wanted to see if you would be concerned about biotin deficiency in this scenario and what your view of optimal range would be. Um. It definitely sounds like it could be a biotin deficiency. Um, And the plasma or serum biotin level is not a good marker of biotin status uh, because it's not very sensitive. And so if you're in the bottom 10% of it, I would definitely take that as a red flag that you might have biotin deficiency. The best test for biotin, well, 
the gold standard for biotin deficiency is beta-hydroxy isovalerate in the urine after a leucine challenge. Um, I don't know how you'd get anyone to, to give you that, but you the next best thing is to get a urinary organic acid test that has beta-hydroxy isovaleric acid on it. And I know that the Genova Ion panel, which is the one I usually prefer, has that, um, but a lot of other ones do too. So I, if you get one, I would just check and see whether the beta-hydroxy isovalerate is on the, um, the list of analytes. Um, and yeah, I would, I, I wouldn't conclude anything just yet, but I would, I would keep biotin deficiency in the running for an explanation. Certainly. Thank you. Are there any other, those are the symptoms that I had detected or just noticed or thought that, is there anything else in particular that you look for in that kind of scenario? Well, uh, had you not mentioned biotin, biotin would have been at the top. Um, but there's a very strong overlap between, uh, and I mentioned this in a previous question is a very strong overlap between biotin B6, um, omega-6 fatty acids, um, and riboflavin. Okay. Well, thanks, Chris. I'll check into those tests and, and follow up. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Now we have Shelly Armstrong coming on board. Hi, Shelly. Your mute button is on. Hi. There Thank you. you. Hi. Okay. So I've had a history of migraines my whole life and I did have a head injury when I fell off a um, jungle gym when I was four, but have had migraines my whole life and they were hormonally influenced. And I've recently um, tried a low histamine diet to see if that would help. And it seems to be, and my naturopath also suggests that I take a histamine blocker with each meal and that seems to be helping as well. So I'm considering having a uh, genetic test to see if I have a DAO enzyme issue, a, a SNP or something, and wanted to know like foundationally what I could do to support that pathway or that, um, that enzyme deficiency, if that's the case, which it seems like it mm -hmm. is because <laughs> when I'm pregnant, I don't get migraines and it's supposed to go up when you're pregnant, the DAO enzyme. When you're pregnant, you don't get migraines, right? And so, so you you get them you get them uh, at ovulation and before you get your period. Correct. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's textbook. So there's right. two. You know, you get them at the two estrogen spikes. You don't get them when you're pregnant because estrogen suppresses DAO and pregnancy massively increases DAO. So I don't. I don't. You don't need a genetic problem with DAO to explain this. Right, you, have an, right. you have an estrogen issue. Um, and so, well, I've also had a hysterectomy, so I don't have the parts and pieces that would. Uh, so I'm I'm supplementing my own um, exogenous oh, estrogen okay. now. Okay. Um, so, are the migraines following the the blood estrogen fluctuations the way you would expect them to? No, that's the other interesting thing. Although I I'm trying to keep my estrogen as low as possible because I want to keep my histamine level down, but I wasn't really thinking about estrogen lowering the DAO either. So that explains why my higher estrogen levels are helping me with the DAO <laughs> to uh, lower uh, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused now. So, okay. um, so they pre-hysterectomy, the migraines were tracking with your cycle. 
I would have them a lot. So it wasn't just my cycle, but um, okay. I definitely would have them when I was younger. I would have them a lot more that could be correlated with luteal and, you know, the onset of menses. So, yes. Okay. And now what is the, what's the monthly fluctuation or is there no rhyme or reason? There's to no it? rhyme or reason now. Oh, uh, okay. So now it's right. And so when you said estrogen is helping, did you mean helping to make the migraines happen or did you mean helping to get rid of that? I think it's helping not that when it was higher, it seemed like I got fewer migraines, but really? because I had that higher, yeah. Um, just to keep it from fluctuating as much because I was using a patch. So it's pretty constant. See, uh, there wasn't oh, the fluctuation. Okay. I was just oh, trying to okay, override okay. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. So yeah, there might, there might be a, um, there might be a benefit. There might be comp. Um, Could be more than one term, thing. Long-term. <laughs> no, well, I, what I think is happening is the estrogen is probably suppressing DAO uh, when it's higher, but because it's staying suppressed, there's compensation that's happening for it to help minimize the histamine level. Whereas when the estrogen is cyclical, um, it's suppressing DAO when the body hasn't made any adaptations to low DAO. Um, and that's sort of like sometimes women will get very strong problems with histamine coming off of a pregnancy because mm-hmm. the DAO has been so high so long mm-hmm. that um, all the other adaptations that you would have in other ways of breaking down histamine or downregulating histamine receptors or whatever else uh, are have all been, there's been no need for them. And so your body is maximally accustomed to DAO doing all the work for you. And then all right. of a sudden you have the baby, that effect is gone um, you know, the placenta is gone and, and that's the end of it. Now you're left with, um, plus you've been exposed to high estrogen the whole time. So now right. you have like no non-placental DAO, no placental DAO, and everything is optimized for a very high DAO environment. It's a, it's a perfect storm for massive um, histamine problems. So, right. um, so I think, you know, I, I, you might have a, polymorphism in DAO, but I don't think it would change anything in an actionable way. And mm-hmm. I don't think you need it to explain what's happening. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a result of estrogen spikes and it's better when the estrogen is more consistent. And so, uh, doing what you've been doing with the estrogen is going to be, is going to be helpful. It seems like it's working and it makes sense that it's working. Um, things that you can do to support DA, DAO activity, um, would be, uh, support with copper, vitamin B6, and riboflavin. I would be careful with the copper because estrogen increases uh, copper absorption. And so I would measure your serum copper, try to keep it in the middle of the range around 120 or so, try to keep it out of the bottom third of the range. But you may find that your copper runs high, in which case don't supplement with it because it could make things worse. Um, And then I would think uh, maybe 25 milligrams of vitamin B6 as P5P, pyridoxal 5-phosphate. And um, you said 30 uh, milligrams? I said 25. 25. Okay. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go higher than 100, but I would experiment right. with you know anything yeah. up to there, but I would do it slowly. Um, you know, yeah, I'm taking the P5P. So um, that's good. Okay. And then I copper zinc imbalance but he didn't elaborate as to what that imbalance was you know this one doctor i saw mentioned that so i still have to follow up on that 
I don't think zinc is very relevant. I would look at copper and just try to be or in the 100 to 120 range for serum copper. Um, okay. If you're higher than that, don't supplement copper. If you're lower than that, boost some copper-rich foods uh, in your diet. Okay. And then... Um, and then riboflavin, and you could experiment with any anywhere from two milligrams of riboflavin to four hundred milligrams of riboflavin. Um, if two if two milligrams helps, I wouldn't use four hundred. But if you know if two milligrams doesn't help and five milligrams doesn't help, I I would try a hundred to four hundred just to see if it does well, help. I, I take four hundred and it does help. So. Oh, okay, great. Well, then you may have mostly exhausted everything that I could offer. Right, okay, but, that's good um, to know. Thank but, you. Maybe yeah. we benefited some other people. So, um, right. All right. Well, thanks, Shelly. Awesome. Thank you. That's interesting. Thank you. Uh, next up is Martina. Martina, you're on mute. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Here we are. Hi Good Martina. Uh, hello from Switzerland. Hi. Please. So my problem is that I seem to have uh, something with the uh, iron storage. Uh, my ferritin is very low. Uh, last time I measured it was 6.8 uh, micrograms per liter. But my serum iron and transferrin are okay. Hemoglobin is okay. All the other markers that uh, the doctors checked uh, were okay. So I don't know if there's any trick to replenish just the ferritin levels without having too much iron or yeah, what, what do I need to do? Uh, I would first see whether uh, getting more iron in your diet raises your transferrin saturation uh, or your iron saturation higher than 40%. If it does, then I wouldn't push it. But if it doesn't, or if your transferrin saturation is significantly below 30%, then I think there's room to try to increase iron further because what should happen in a normally functioning um, physiology is that as iron saturation goes up between 30 and 40%, the excess goes into ferritin. And so if you're hanging out below 30%, then your serum iron might look like it's in the normal range but you're never telling ferritin to store some of it. And if you if you push it, if you push iron up in the diet and it goes beyond 40% significantly, then that that shows you that there is a problem actually storing ferritin. But if you're never getting up to 40% and you're never and you're always worried about pushing iron up higher because the serum iron is normal, then I I think that you're not giving ferritin a chance to take up the extra. Um with that said, if uh, pushing iron up isn't the answer. I would try something like milk thistle or sulforaphane, things that are designed to promote uh, gene expression for detoxification uh, are an antioxidant defense, such as milk thistle and sulforaphane are generally also going to raise ferritin because ferritin is part of the protective response. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. That's perfect. Thank you for your question. Take care, Martina. All right, Shirlene is up next. Hello, Hi, Shirlene. Chris. Hi, Shirlene. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, thank you. Um, I've got a um, question about B6. I, I did watch your video on um, using B6 and P5P 
Um, I'm just, uh, I'm wondering, is there any chance that taking that might make breathlessness? Um, I'm not aware of breathlessness as a response to it, but uh, I, if it, I mean, if you feel like you got an adverse effect to it, I would take take it out and see if the adverse effect goes away. Yeah, um, I think it, because I'm taking quite a few supplements, it's hard to um, work out, you know, to isolate which one it might be. But I have had B6 difficulties um, a lot. I sort of identify a lot with Shelley um, Armstrong, who just spoke about her migraines. That's very much um, typical of me too. But um, B6, having a morning sickness, being pregnant, really severe morning sickness, they injected me with um, B6 and it just made me so much worse. So um, I well, just wondered well, that's, about that. I mean, that's that's interesting. Um, I mean, that's a sign that you don't tolerate B6 very well. No, not the pyridoxine at all. No. Well, I mean, it's a reason to be careful with the P5P too, if you had a Is negative it? reaction for... Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I'm not saying it means that you can't tolerate P5P. I'm just saying you already have one good reason to be careful around it. So, um, I, you know, I think if I'm dealing with a situation where I'm getting an adverse effect and I did so many things that I don't know what's causing it, I would get rid of everything and just do an elimination diet with my supplements, and then add things back one at a time. Um, yeah. You know, because you don't you don't know what that what that is. Um, and you don't know if it's something that's getting worse. So I think it's better to just, um, you know, if, if I've, if I've been taking a bunch of supplements and I don't know what's doing what, but something's worrying me, my response will be to just cut everything out for a bit and then start adding things one, one in at a time. And I generally favor adding things in or taking them out one at a time. So you can see the effect of each, um, okay. You know, but if something's really worrying you, then it might be good to just cut everything out um, so that you can get to a baseline where you feel good and then, you know, step by step, try to figure out what each thing is doing. What did the, um, thank you for that. The, the ancestral supplements I'm taking liver, would, would it still be okay to stay on, on the liver since it's not a supplement, it's more a food? I don't see any reason why you can't go off the liver for a few days. You know, liver is okay. a great a great source of nutrition, but your nutrition's not going to fail you in one week. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably okay to stay on it, but who knows what's causing the problem. Right. So, yeah. um, I, I think that, you know, it's great to get good nutrition, but we should always be aware that, uh, you know, if we get bad nutrition for a couple of days, it's not a big deal. Because these nutrients are stored in the body and our, you know, our enzymes are clinging to them. Uh, we can go a few days or a week um, without eating anything, in fact. Uh, so we can certainly go a few days or a week without taking supplements. So I think, you know, I mean, if you, if you really want to take it, one possible way to deal with that would be take everything except that out. See if the problem goes away. If the problem doesn't go away, take that out. But if the problem does go away you know, you took out the thing that was causing the problem. Yeah, it's good logic. Thank you yep. very much. You're welcome, Shirlene. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Too. Bye. All right. Xavier's up and then I'll go into the backlog of Q&A panel questions.
Hi, Xavier. Hi, hi Chris. Uh, can you hear me well? I can hear you great. Okay, fantastic. Thanks for taking uh, the question. Um, yeah, uh, you, you talk about um, uh, the NAD uh, slash NADH uh, ratio um, in, in your research. You also talk about the NADH slash NADPH ratio. Um, could you could you refresh our memory and, and tell us uh, whether these ratios are meant to measure the same physiological processes or yeah, not? Yeah. And if they are, could you just give us, you know, just a, a quick feel for w what they actually mean? Got it. So the NADH to NAD ratio and the NADPH to NADP plus ratio are are things that are having real consequences as ratios in biochemistry that are dictating what's going on in our body. The NADPH to NADH ratio is physiologically irrelevant, but is used as a biomarker of niacin status. So if you look at a biochemistry textbook that's telling you how things work in the body, you're going to see constant references to the NADH to NAD ratio or the NADPH to NADP plus ratio. And you're never going to see any reference to the NADPH to NADH ratio. Um, the NADPH to NADH ratio is used to calculate the niacin number, which is used as a test for niacin status. And the logic of the niacin number is that antioxidant defense is so uh, critical to cellular health that if you are niacin deficient, your NADH will go down, but your NADPH will stay constant as long as it can. And so generally, you will have a very high niacin number if you have a, uh, an excellent amount of niacin. And you'll have a very low niacin number, meaning you'll have less you'll uh, NADH, but the same NADPH when you're low in niacin. So basically, the expectation is... Um, NADPH will will re remain relatively constant in deficiency, whereas uh, niacin deficiency will selectively deplete the pool of NADH first. Um, but and so that's one thing. That's a marker of nutritional status. The other ratios are not markers of nutritional status, um, but they're biochemically relevant. The marker of nutritional status has no biochemical re relevance. So the NADH to NAD ratio is um, you're going to have more NADH when you are well-fed and less NADH when you are less well-fed. And you're going to have more NAD when you're burning energy. And you're going to have less NAD when you're not burning energy. So you can sort of imagine um, the maximal NADH to NAD ratio is going to be when you are uh, overfed and sedentary and the maximal uh, or the minimal NADH to NAD ratio is going to be when you're fasting and you're doing exercise. Um, and there are other things that can impact that, such as whether you're running on one fuel or another, like ketones will change one in the liver and change it in the opposite direction in the brain and stuff like that. But thinking of it as fed versus, you know, energy in versus energy out is the best way to think about it. The NADPH to NADP plus ratio um, is going to be highest when you have a high uh, high activity of the pentose phosphate pathway and is going to be lowest when you have low activity of that pathway. 
um, it's generally going to be pretty constant because you want to operate that pathway quite well whenever you can. Um, but if it's low, that's going to compromise your antioxidant defense and your ability to synthesize things like cholesterol, neurotransmitters, fatty acids, nucleotides, and to recycle folate and vitamin K. Uh, when it's high, all those processes will run smoothly. And recycling glutathione, I didn't mention. Um, and also uh, uh, some detoxification as well. Um, so uh, generally, any the reason you want a high... and So generally in health, you'll have a very high NADPH to NADP plus ratio, and you'll have a very low NADH to NAD plus ratio. And so um, NADPH is you generally want high in health because it's helping you synthesize things, recycle things, and support antioxidant defense and detoxification. Um, NADH, you generally want low, meaning you want high NADP, NAD+, and that's because that's going to help you burn fuel in a very effective manner. Um, if your NADH goes up too much, then you, that's signifying the overfed sedentary state. Um, so those two ratios are biochemical. The other one, the ratio between those two different systems is a marker of nutritional status. Does that help? Yes, yes, it's very helpful. Um, and so when you take nicotinamide riboside, uh, do you impact these three ratios throughout um, or do you, or, or not? And, and, and what is the benefit of, you know, NR supplements relative to, these ratios relative to age, better aging? Uh, when you take NR, you will probably increase all those ratios, but because you're increasing the niacin number, which means you, that means you're having a better increase in the NADH pool than you are in the NADPH pool. And so if you're increasing that ratio, it by definition means that you're having a much bigger impact on the NADH pool than the NADPH pool. Now, um, that's probably contextual. You know, there might be some people where that average situation doesn't play out um, or who are so deficient that they need not more niacin to support NADPH, but that's a general rule. You will increase all, all pools, but you will specifically favor NADH more than the uh, than the other pool, um, and then uh, NR is going to be better at at supporting the production of of NAD uh, of any of those systems than um, niacin or nicotinamide, um, whereas an uh, NMN is probably equivalent to NR. Very nice, thank you, right. uh, Chris. You're Thank welcome, you. Xavier. Okay, I'm going to go to the Q&A box now. Sorry, Q&A box people. I know you've been waiting for a while. Anita Morgan says, I understand calcium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate raise pH. Would magnesium bicarbonate made from magnesium hydroxide and carbonated water also work? What about other forms of carbonate bicarbonate? Do these lower stomach acid need to be taken between meals? Um. So, uh, if you, if you, um, magnesium hydroxide and carbonated water, um, okay. So if you drink carbonated water, 
the CO2 is going to give up hydrogen ions to become carbonic acid, which is going to give up hydrogen ions to become bicarbonate. So making bicarbonate from CO2 is acidic. Taking bicarbonate is uh, alkaline. So the thing you have to keep in mind here is that the reason bicarbonate is alkaline is because it makes CO2. The reason CO2 is acidic is because it makes bicarbonate. And that might sound very confusing um, if you haven't taken chemistry, but uh, but it's it, it, it follows from the chemistry. So acidity is a hydrogen ion. Um, and if you put CO2 in solution with water, it will combine with the water to generate... Uh, hydroxide ions and become carbonic acid. And the carbonic acid will then do the same thing to become uh, bicarbonate. I think I just said that right. CO2 uh, reacts twice to generate uh, carbonic acid and bicarbonate. Each time it gives off a hydrogen ion. Giving off a hydrogen ion is acidic. Um, Bicarbonate reacts twice going backwards to become CO2. Each time it takes up a hydrogen ion. Taking away hydrogen ions is alkaline. So um, taking carbonated water will be acidic. Uh, no matter what, the magnesium doesn't doesn't really matter um, because it's about the bicarbonate or the CO two. It's not about the magnesium. However, the hydroxide ion from the magnesium will have some alkaline effect. So magnesium hydroxide will be alkaline, um, but it has nothing at all to do with the CO two or the bicarbonate. Um, it's just a completely separate issue. Um, What about other forms of carbonate bicarbonate? Well, bicarbonate is always going to be alkaline. Uh, Carbonate is always going to be a little bit less alkaline. Um, Do these lower stomach acid need to be taken between meals? Uh, You know, I don't favor taking bicarbonate because... um, I mean, it's clear that it reacts with the stomach acid by the fact that it makes you burp. And so I I wouldn't want to directly decrease my stomach acid when I'm eating a meal. It just strikes me as p- having the potential to hurt digestion. At the same time, there is bicarbonate in food. So there's obviously some safe dose to take with your food. Uh, but it, it that might be more, um, it might be much safer to take in food versus taking like a quarter teaspoon or a half teaspoon of, of baking soda uh, on the basis that the bicarbonate is intracellular and really inside that food. And by the time stomach acid starts mixing food together, inside the food generally is not that acidic because there's so many buffering compounds inside the food. Um, but you're still making an acid coat around the food wh- that is forming a, a surface of high digestive capacity. And so you don't really want the acid neutralized on the outside of the food, I don't think. And so I don't think you want bicarbonate provided outside of your food. That's the way I'm thinking about it. Um, With that said, uh, you also get alkaline effects from malate and... Sorry for the sirens. Uh, You also get... um, you also get alkaline effects from malate and from... uh, fumarate and from uh, citrate 
Um, so generally any of these organic acids that are part of the Krebs cycle are going to have a bicarbonate sparing effect that is not going to be uh, neutralizing acid in the stomach because they don't become bicarbonate sparing until they become intracellular. And when you do eat foods that naturally have bicarbonate, they also naturally have citrate, fumarate, and malate. Uh, and generally, you can use potassium as an index of the uh, organic acids in a meal. So um, potassium is very strongly correlated with intracellular organic acids. And so if you want an alkaline effect uh, from a meal that is not reliant on a bolus dose of bicarbonate heading straight for the stomach acid, uh, just eat a meal that's high in potassium. Thank you, Anita, for your question. Okay, Hector says, Hector Garcia says, what is the optimal diet to minimize the bacterial translocation? This would be therapeutic for diseases like Crohn's where the bacterial load in the intestinal tissue is the main cause of inflammation. Um, this is not something I've studied that much. So I, I'm aware of some research suggesting that fat and saturated fat in particular uh, increase bacterial translocation. Um, you know, I'm guessing that if you take something like psyllium husk or in general, you have high insoluble fiber that you might counteract that. Um, and, you know, promoting a healthy microbiome could minimize the importance of that. Uh, but I don't, I don't have much more to say about it than that. I'm sorry. I can't have a more, I don't have a more detailed answer for you, Hector. Okay, Victoria Feinberg says, I will have several dental appointments in the next few weeks. What else can I do in addition to your before and after exposure recommendations? And Deb Stewart says, this is a popular question. Um, Victoria, I, I, I guess you're asking to protect yourself from COVID during the dental appointment. Um, I, I mean, the before and after recommendations uh, in the COVID guide are about that. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure what you're asking for. Um, the, the, uh, povidone iodine part of that before and after protocol was taken, was originally included for dentists in, uh, the American dental associations recommendations. I think they got rid of it. Um, and of course that was not recommended for, for patients that was recommended for, um, that was recommended for uh, the dentists themselves who are at much higher exposure because they're dealing with so many patients. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, all the preventative stuff you can do, like maintain good vitamin D status and other stuff that's in the COVID guide um, to for general immune support, uh, zinc especially, I think is um, you know going to put your body in a state of readiness, and then. I don't see, you know, using the povidone iodine, iodine uh, and the zinc acetate lozenges before and after are good antimicrobial effects for the mouth and nose and throat. Um, and then I think it's a matter of just following all the other recommendations like wear a mask, uh, wash your hands in between touching anything and certainly before you touch yourself, don't sit too close to anyone, 
while you're there. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really have anything to add beyond what's in the COVID guide plus what everyone else is saying about how to protect yourself. So, um, yeah, that's all, that's all I have to say. Uh, thank you, Victoria, for the question. Uh, Lily Hanft says, what is your take on the idea that insulin resistance is caused by increased free fatty acids in the blood from dietary fat, increasing intramyocellular lipid concentrations, and that saturated fats in particular impair insulin sensitivity and damage pancreatic beta cells? And Fran Weintraub says, this is new to me, but I'm also interested in the answer. Um I think that, first of all, I think increased fatty, free fatty acids in the blood, um, I mean, that. so that's going to be nor, a normal reaction to dietary fat. And I think that if you have increased fatty acids and increased glucose, that you have more energy to dispose of. And if you have more energy to dispose of and you don't dispose of the energy, then that's going to cause insulin resistance. Um Intramyocellular lipid, eh, uh, you know, if you, there's not supposed to be a lot of intracellular, uh, intramyocellular lipid. Um, and, you know, in a, in a myocyte, you're supposed to have glycogen there. And if you're displacing it with fat, that's not going to be very good for the muscle cell. But also the mere fact that you got lipid droplets in the muscle cell basically proves that you weren't burning the fat. Um, so I'm not so sure that that's, um, a specific indictment of fat per se, as much as it is an indictment of putting fat into the system that you're not burning. Um, and that's probably mostly a case for not eating a mixed meal of carbs and fat under a situation where you're not burning all the energy. I mean, that's, that's how I see it. Like I would be quite surprised if this, if you could experimentally show that this causes insulin resistance in a way that exercise can't overcome. Um, and uh, the saturated fat question is is interesting to me, but um, I, I mean, to be honest, if it if it was, I haven't I haven't looked into all the research on it because. My my baseline is the real problem is mixing is mixing fuels and not burning them. And if saturated fats are a little bit worse in that case than unsaturated fats, um, you know, well, actually, so my reaction to that is that's what you would expect from the fact that polyunsaturated fats are beta oxidized at a higher rate and saturated fats are beta oxidized at a lower rate. And I personally, my personal opinion is that the reason that PUFAs are oxidized at a higher rate is because they're more dangerous to have around from an oxidative damage perspective. If you look at animals, uh, like a rat, the rat will do everything it can to get rid of excess PUFA, including converting them into saturated fats and uh, expelling them into the fur. And so um, in humans, 
we share at least one thing with the rat, which is that we beta oxidize PUFAs at a higher rate than we beta oxidize saturated fats. Because, and I presume that it's for the same reason that it's just dangerous to have them around. Um, now that works great when you are in energy balance, but if you're eating, if you have a constant supply of mixed carbs and fat and you don't have to do any work to get it and you, you know, are in a overfed state then at some point, the fact that saturated fats aren't burned as easily means they're more likely to get stuck in the cell. And if they are stuck there as sluggishly burned fuel that is always there to compete with normal metabolism um, uh, or just you know sit there in droplets in cells that aren't supposed to have lipid droplets, displacing the normal things in that cell, then yeah, I think they're going to wind up being more toxic. But it's you know, it's the idea that the solution to that is to eat less saturated fat and continue in a state of um, overfedness and sedentaryism. It, uh, it, it, it might mitigate the insulin resistance, but it's not, it's not the fundamental thing that should be how we think about mitigating the insulin resistance. Like the fundamental thing should be support the clean burning of fuel support burning the fuel and support cycling in and, in and out of the fasting state and fed state. Thank you, Lily, for your question. Uh, Magnolia has seven questions. Um, I'll answer one or if they're very closely tied together, I'll answer a few before I, I make sure I answer questions of people that haven't answered yet. Um, so the first of Magnolia's questions are, Number one, Jero offers a zinc-copper balance supplement. Isn't this self-defeating? Don't they both mutually hinder each other's absorption? Uh, no. So um, the competition between their absorption is not that bad. And if it was, if it was bad, um, no, everyone would be deficient in both of them because all foods that contain one contain the other. Uh, rather, having zinc status that is too high will increase the chelation of copper in the small intestinal cell by metallothionine, which will then cause the copper to get wasted in the feces. And uh, that's the problem that you want to avoid. And having too high of a zinc status can cause a copper deficiency through that means. Um, thank you, Magnolia, for, for your question. I'll come back to some of the others after I make sure everyone's gotten a chance to ask a question. Heather Chandler says, if... Free carnitine is normal, although very bottom of normal range, but total carnitine is low. Is that worth supplementing? Supplementation does increase the acylcarnitine fraction and total carnitine to near normal levels, but I'm not clear about whether it's worth worrying about. So if the total carnitine is low but the free carnitine is normal, then total carnitine is low because the acyl carnitines are low. Um, I wouldn't be too worried about the acyl carnitines being low. I would be very worried if the acyl carnitines were very high and overwhelming the total pool of carnitine because that would suggest a metabolic problem. Um, but, but what I mainly hear is that everything is on the low side. Um, 
So I would judge it by empirical results. I mean, a, a situation like that is is very ripe for trying to see if carnitine helps. And I'm not a big fan of treating numbers when there's you know, no perceptible benefit to it. But if your energy level is better, or if you can think more clearly, or if you have other benefits from bringing that carnitine more into the uh, middle of the range levels, then I would stick with the supplement. But if it, you know, if there's no perceptible benefit to it, then I don't really see the point in trying to treat the number. Um, you know, but it's worth noting that if your carnitine runs low, it's also always possible that it could run a little bit lower in the future. And that, that might change the situation where you really do benefit from the carnitine. And so I would at least keep carnitine on the table as something that could potentially help in the future. Uh, if the situation changes. Thank you, Heather, for your question. Okay. RJ Douglas says, Dr. CMJ, I have been trying to follow your suggestion of getting a small amount of daily of liver daily. To try to accomplish this, I've been making liver pate wherein I cook beef liver on the stove and then put it in the Vitamix. I then have a spoonful or two in the mornings. Couple of questions. One, would this way of consuming liver, i.e. in a blended pate form, be equally nutritious or would anything be lost in the processing of the blending? If I get liver from a trusted source, I usually usually get it from US Wellness, would you say it is okay to eat raw? Thanks in advance and please keep up the great work. I've been able to increase my knowledge of nutrition tenfold in the past few months through your AMAs, articles, and courses. Thank you, RJ. Um, so the blending might hurt some really sensitive stuff like... Um, there's a lot of glutathione in liver. It might, it might hurt some of the glutathione. Um, but I don't think, I think the majority of the vitamins are going to be okay. And the minerals in general will be fine. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's important to note that, um, you know, if it makes a difference between whether you eat the liver or not, then it's much more important to eat a liver that you like. And then number two, um, I'm not going to take responsibility if you get a parasite from eating raw liver, but my personal choice at, during times when I've wanted to eat raw liver, my rule has always been that if it's frozen for two weeks or longer, it's safe to eat. And, it, and it's also from a clean and trusted source. That's the rule that I've personally applied to myself, but please be careful to do your own research and do your own, make your own decision without holding me liable for it. Thanks. Okay, Monica Nelson says, when a lecithin product states that the phosphatidylcholine content, am I to multiply that by 15%? Um, yes, if a lecithin product states the phosphatidylcholine content, you want to know the choline content, multiply it by 15%. Um, and then the rest of that is uh, fatty acids and phosphorus, and it's got nothing to do with choline. Okay. Thank you, Monica, for your question. Stephanie McDermott says, what would you recommend for a person who has MTHFR SNP and trouble with depression, irritability, anxiety? Is this a side effect from too, methylation, too much methylation, methylfolate? Would you use niacin? Thank you. Um, so if someone has an MTHFR SNP, they, they don't have enough methylfolate. 
And so if they're treating it with methylfolate and the methylfolate causes the depression, irritability, and anxiety, um, then I think that's, uh, then that's one thing. Whereas if they have the MTHFR SNP, they're not, they're not doing anything about it and they have depression, irritability, anxiety, that's another thing. So if they're not doing anything about it and they have those problems, then it's probably from undermethylation. Um, if they're supplementing methylfolate and that's causing the depression, irritability, and anxiety, then my guess is that that is a temporary transient overmethylation state that is a result of the um, body being adapted to a low methylfolate state and suddenly switching to a high methylfolate state. And I think the, the key to getting through that is to take small doses of the methylfolate and uh, equilibrate to the small, the lowest dose. Like there's, uh, if you search liquid meth liquid methylfolate on Amazon, there's one that's 72 micrograms per drop. So take one drop per day until you are sure you tolerate it. Then you know after a week, increase to a second drop, and so on. Work your way up um, to keep the overmethylation responses to a minimum, to or at least within the range of toleration, and and build up your tolerance to it. Um, by contrast, if this problem, uh, oh, and I would not ever use niacin for overmethylation. Um, if you if you suffer from overmethylation, that is from anything other than being equilibrated to a low methylfolate state, switching to a high methylfolate state, um, then I then I would look at glycine as the endogenous methyl buffer, not niacin as a pharmacological methyl buffer, um, and then. Uh, I have a detailed MTHFR protocol at, you know, just Google Chris Masterjohn start here for methylation. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Um, just make, let me just make a note of that. Uh, but um, the, the core of that is to get 1,200 milligrams of choline, to get five grams a day of creatine, um, and to uh, get methylfolate in small doses frequently across the day, and to experiment with glycine, preferably to normalize blood levels of glycine. But if you don't have blood levels, then to normalize um, how you feel. Uh, that's the gist of my MTHFR protocol. All right. Thank you, Stephanie, for your question. Will Estes says, the liver, and so we have uh, 10 minutes. I'll try to get through all the questions pretty fast. I don't know if I'll be able to do that, but let's not uh, get any new questions. Will Estes says, the liver has a detoxification system that converts drugs and toxins into a form that is more easily discarded through bile. The phase two detoxification step uses alternate methods such as sulfation, glutathione, or glucuronidation. Some pathogenic bacteria are able to reverse glucuronidation. There are a lot of studies on enterohepatic circulation, in which pharmaceutical drugs are, that are conjugated and passed to the gut through the bile after phase two conjugation, then later get reabsorbed into the body from the ileum. My question, once a toxin is conjugated through phase two and released in the bile, if it is not deconjugated, does it reabsorb along with the 95% of bile that reabsorbs? I looked in several medical liver textbooks and this point is not made clear. 95% of the bile reabsorbs in the ileum, but do the phase two conjugates somehow dissociate from the bile before the bile is reabsorbed? Um, I, I mean, this is not 
like in my core expertise, but I'm quite sure that they get reabsorbed. Otherwise, how would phase two conjugation ever result in these things going into the urine? Um, so, you know, I think they're going to get, get excreted in the urine, uh, the, in the feces, but a proportion of them, probably a large one given, you know, in roughly in proportion to the bile. I don't know if it's in, I don't know if it's the same proportion, but probably the more bile that gets reabsorbed, the more these phase two conjugates get reabsorbed, but they get reabsorbed um, and, you know, flow into the systemic circulation and from the systemic circulation uh, wind up in the urine. Um, I, I think that's the case, but uh, I could be wrong, but I, I think that's what's happening. So some gets goes into the feces, a lot goes into the urine. A lot of what does go into the urine is from the portion that's reabsorbed. I think that's the case. All right. Thank you, Will, for your question. Daniel Sala says, I have subclinical hypothyroidism. I manage it as best I can, but it's still functioning non-optimally. Organic acid ion tests have shown bottom of reference range B2, B6, and carnitine, and MMA tests indicate a slight deficiency in B12. The caveat is when I take these nutrients via supplement, it often feels like my thyroid becomes more sluggish. Any insight in the best way to take these supplements, dose timing form to mitigate the symptoms, no lack of animal protein in my diet. Um... I'm not sure why that would be the case. Uh, I mean, I would first look at whether your thyroid markers are actually changing because if the thyroid markers are not changing, then you might be perceiving it as making your thyroid more sluggish, but it might have might be something very different. For example, uh, it might be just um, you know some intolerance slowing you down. And if you're supplementing these all at the same time, it might be hard to distinguish which one is causing what effect. So I would also try supplementing them one at a time and not all at the same time so that you can figure out if there's one that's causing sluggishness and not another one. Um, and then, I, you know, I would need to understand better what's ca actually causing that to suggest dose timing and form. Um, so I think, you know, number one is when you feel that way, how are your thyroid markers changing? Number two test is what happens when you test these things one at a time? Is there a specific nutrient or a specific form of the nutrient that's causing that reaction? Or is it across the board true that each one of these on its own will cause that same reaction? I think those are the first steps that you want to try to figure out in order to get to the bottom of this. Thank you, Daniel, for, the quest for your question. Okay, Bernardo uh, Junquiera says, I do keto diet from time to time, but when I eat mostly animal-based, my serum B12 levels are consistently high around one, pico I think he means 1,000 picograms per milliliter, even when I'm not supplementing or, even, or eating liver. However, I do eat red meat once a day, four eggs a day, some milk and cheese. My serum folate levels are consistently higher on 18 to 20, sometimes higher, that's fine. When I mostly eat animal based, it gets a bit lower, around 15 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, while tracking my diet with chronometer over a few weeks before doing my latest blood work, I noticed my daily B12 intakes ranges from 100 to 250% of the RDA, my folate from 50 to 100% of the RDA. My homocysteine levels normally range from seven to nine. That's great. 
Last time it was 11 while keto. I know these numbers are all related and I may have a polymorphism that could perhaps explain that. I never did a genetic testing because it's too expensive in my country. Question, could you please make a correlation between these numbers, B12 folate homocysteine? Thank you. You're awesome. Thank you, Bernardo, for your question. Um, you know, the homocysteine is probably rising up to 11 because you're eating more animal protein um, and because your folate levels are dropping a little bit. So, you know, you can eat a little bit more folate or supplement a little bit fo of folate or cut down on the animal protein a little bit if you wanted to get it into seven to nine. Um, you know, with a very high B12 intake, I'm just not too sure uh, if eating two and a half times the RDA can raise B12 uh, that high, but it's conceivable. So if you don't have any abnormalities in your complete blood count, you don't have any pro uh, signs of liver or kidney problems in your blood work, and you have a very high B12 intake, I wouldn't really worry about having B12 that high. Um, and that folate is is good. 18 to 20 nanograms per milliliter is perfect. So I think overall you're in good shape. And at most, what you need is a little bit of tweaking uh, to keep the homocysteine at seven to nine through modulating your animal protein and your folate intake. All right. Hope that helps. Thank you, Bernardo, for your question. Ben Shi says, hi, Chris. My subarachnoid uh, my subarachnoid dermatitis flares up in line with how much choline I consume, regardless of whether it's from eggs, liver, or supplements. The flare-ups start below the recommended daily choline requirements and get very bad if I take large supplemental dosages. I've tried to push through the flare-ups, but I usually give up after a week or two due to the subarachnoid dermatitis only getting worse. Note that I've thoroughly explored nutrient deficiencies for seborrheic dermatitis, and I'm wondering what to do about choline intake. Eat a low-choline diet to control it, get adequate choline, but exacerbate it, or some other suggestion. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but it might have something to do with acetylcholine's effect on sweat glands and maybe increasing the oil production or something like that. And so you might want to shift your uh, choline, uh, shift away from choline and towards trimethylglycine, TMG, to support methylation and see whether you get the same results from that. If you do, there's something deeper to the story around methylation um, or around some other metabolite that I can't think of. Whereas if that does allow you to support methylation. Uh, as long as you feel, as long as your liver health is good, your gallbladder health is good, your fat digestion is good, and your cognitive performance is good, then I think you can uh, do fine on a lower choline intake below what causes the problem. Thank you, Ben, for your pro uh, for your question. Um, all right, we only have a few minutes left, so there's going to be some of these questions that I'm not going to be able to get to. I would encourage, uh, I'm going to try to open up um, another Q&A this month. And so if you don't get your questions answered in the last few minutes, um, I, I would encourage you to come back next time. I'll try to release the sign up soon so we can get uh, through these. There's just um, there's a lot of, lot of people in here. And I'm doing my best to get through everything. Okay, so... Um, Iris from Copenhagen says, could one take a vitamin E supplement just once a week instead of daily and have the same positive effects as long as that dose is seven times the daily dose? Yeah, you could probably get away with that. Um, it's not my preference, but it's it's probably it's probably fine. Um, okay, there's a few other questions, that, but just for the sake of trying to get to as many people as possible, I'm going to get to the next one. 
Uh, Shane H says, if zinc supplements are best absorbed on an empty stomach, but are not well tolerated, even in small doses, but food-based supplements like Oyster Max are tolerated, should these be taken with food or on an empty stomach? Uh, if they're well tolerated on an empty stomach, take them on an empty stomach. If you can't take them on an empty stomach, um, you know, you can always uh, just shoot for a phytate-free meal uh, that has animal protein in it. But uh, Oyster Max on an empty stomach is fine. All right, I'll do one last question. Um, Okay, Anita, uh, no, let's see if there's someone I think that I haven't gotten to. Okay, Caesar Davila, last question. Caesar Davila says, I have ADHD. I manage it as best I can with exercise and eating a high folate and Mediterranean diet. What is your take on the correlations between 30 to 60% MTHFR variant and symptoms like ADHD? The MTHFR variant reduces the metabolic process of absorbing less nutrition and poor gut detoxification. When I don't get enough sleep, is often correlated to poor gut health and increased ADHD. I managed to dramatically improve sleep consistently by drinking bone broth every night. How does drinking bone broth improve sleep and improve methylation? And is there anything else you could recommend to improve gut health for sleep? Um, I I don't really... I, I'm doubtful that MTHFR has a huge impact on detoxification. I think a lot of people are assuming that because methylation plays a role in detoxification. Um, but uh, I doubt it. I, I doubt that's the main thing that's going on. Uh, definitely makes sense that you could have poor gut health and increased ADHD tied together. Um, you know, the, the, um, the gut and the gaps diet, gut and psychology, uh, gut and psychology syndrome, uh, is based on the connection between gut dysfunction causing, psychiatric problems. So it, you know, that's definitely relevant. Um, and then of course the gut can produce things like, um, histamine that can produce, uh, constant stimulation that prevents you from falling asleep and that can also worsen the problem. So, uh, there's lots of ways that that could happen. And, um, and MTHFR could lower the removal of histamine. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, I think MTHFR, you know, if you have low methylation, that should actually make you more mentally rigid, not more ADHD. Whereas overmethylation of dopamine will make you more towards the ADHD side. But when you have low MTHFR uh, and low methylfolate levels, that can cause glycine wasting. And glycine improves sleep. Bone broth contains glycine. So the glycine wasting that occurs with MTHFR would explain why you have improved gut health. Uh, excuse me. It would explain why you have improved sleep with drinking bone broth every night. Um, but, uh, and I think it's possible that um, glycine as an inhibitory neurotransmitter might have some impact on ADHD. Although I think ADHD is, is largely dri driven by um, not enough uh, not enough dopamine, not enough tonic dopamine, and maybe not enough GABA signaling. Um, now, methylation is used in dopamine synthesis um, at some level, uh, but the main effect of methylation is generally to 
reduce the level, uh, the background amount of, of uh, dope. Um, wait a second. Uh, methyl. So, okay. So methylation will reduce the, um, the background level of tonic dopamine and yeah. Okay. Sorry. And make you more mentally flexible and a lack of methylation will generally lead to a higher level of background dopamine and, uh, make you not as mentally flexible. So I, I really don't think that the ADHD is solely a consequence of MTHFR, I think just think the MTHFR is, you know, low methylation state and glycine wasting is probably playing into some of the aggravating factors, particularly glycine wasting. And the fact that you benefit so much from drinking bone broth to improve your sleep suggests that you do run low in glycine. Um, okay, Caesar, I, I hope that helps answer your question. Uh, we are out of time. And so I'm sorry that I didn't get to some of the questions I had way more questions than I've gotten um, in any of the previous Q&As this year. And we had way more people come on to the uh, onto the big screen than any other Q&A this year. Um, so it looks like there's really high demand for Q&As right now. Um, and that, you know, I'm sorry that I couldn't get to you, but what I'll do is I'll try to make them more frequent. I'll try to see if I can find uh, time to do one next week. I'll announce that maybe late tonight or early tomorrow morning. If you didn't get to answer your question, please uh, copy it and save it somewhere so you can ask it next time, um, or or just uh, you know come up with a new question next time. And hopefully, I'll get to you and I'll I'll try to do them uh, more frequently until the questions slow down back to their old pace. Um, because uh, it look based on the number of questions and the number of people coming onto the big screen, it looks like there's a lot of pent up desire to ask questions. So, uh, to keep a lookout for, um, to keep a lookout for an announcement soon tonight or tomorrow morning about, uh, upcoming Q and A. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. It was great to see you and I'll try to get the recording out soon. Take care.